the study was done over seven years, and from year to year, it was remarkably consistent uh, between 20 and 25 percent survival rate. Of those fawns that died, 80 percent of them were being taken by coyotes, about 10 percent by bobcats, and then various miscellaneous other accidents and a few abandonments and things like that accounted for, for the rest of it. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and this week we'll be talking with Dr. John Kilgo, a research wildlife biologist with the USDA, all about whitetail fawns, from how a doe chooses a, a location to have her fawns, to the fawn's first few hours and, and months of life, to fawn predation, and, and how we as hunters and land managers can help improve fawn survival where we hunt. So uh, John has been researching whitetail deer and, and fawns for, for years now and is just a wealth of information on the subject. And guys, if you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Kilgo and you're listening to this on the day it releases, so that will be Wednesday, April 13th, uh, 2022, you can join us tonight for our next free NDA Beer and Deer webinar and we're actually going to be featuring Dr. Kilgo. He's going to be giving a presentation, and he'll be going over more of this this fawn-related stuff. So, uh, again, that, that is free to attend. All you need to do is head over to our website at DeerAssociation.com. Under the Get Involved menu link, look for our Beer and Deer webinars, and you can register right there. won't cost you anything. That's 7 p.m. tonight, Wednesday, April 13th. So we'll, we'd love to see you there, and that will give you the chance to actually ask some questions you may have uh, to Dr. Kilgo regarding fawns and fawn, re, uh, fawn uh, recruitment and, and anything related to that. Uh, so we hope you'll, you'll join us for that. Hey, before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by longtime NDA partner, Westervelt Wildlife Services. Uh, Westervelt provides the best in private timberland hunting leases, deer management plans, habitat management for deer, wildlife property management guidance, and they also manage hunting leases for other landowners across the southeast. So to learn more about Westervelt, check them out at westerveltwildlife.com. Also want to make you guys aware of our annual Ferminator membership drive that's going on right now. Uh, we're offering two special memberships that'll put you in a drawing for a six-foot Ferminator G3 food plot implement. And that thing's worth about $9,000. Uh, it's a, one of those all-in-one food plot implements, so you can just, it, it does everything you need to do uh, in one pass to get that seed in the ground. And uh, we're also giving away a 2022 NDA Rifle of the Year along with that. So we're only selling 500 chances on this one. So everybody's going to have a, a pretty good chance of winning. And you'll want to grab yours before they're gone. And you can do that at DeerAssociation.com slash Furminator. And one final thing before we get on the phone here with John. Uh, guys, don't forget about our upcoming first ever NDA Day of Giving on May 11th. Uh, so please mark your calendars for that. As a 501c3 nonprofit, the NDA relies on, on memberships and donations from folks like yourself, along with our corporate partners. 
So this will be an important day for us. Um, incredibly, we've already had someone step up and agree to match all donations made on May 11th, dollar for dollar, up to $50,000. So uh, again, we're just extremely excited about our giving day and hope you'll consider making a, a donation to help us ensure the future of wild deer, wildlife habitat, and hunting. And guys, with that, we're going to jump on the phone here with Dr. John Kilgo to talk all about whitetail fawns. John, before we dive into all things whitetail fawns, can you just tell us a little bit about what led you down this path to conducting deer research for a living? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess, like a lot of biologists, or at least of, of my generation anyway, I grew up hunting and fishing with my dad, bird watching, camping, uh, just spending a lot of time in the woods. He was actually an English professor and a writer in the University of Georgia, but he had a lot of friends that, that he hunted with who were biologists and foresters, uh, people that worked in the woods. And some of those men also had a lot of influence on me. Um, one in particular who was a wildlife biologist was really like a, a second mentor to me, and he'd tell stories of what he did at work. So I guess when I realized I wasn't going to make it as a professional baseball player, <laughs> and that didn't take long, uh, I knew I wanted to, to do the kinds of things that he did to work with wildlife. So I got a bachelor's degree in biology from a little liberal arts college in South Carolina called Wofford. Then I went to the University of Florida for a master's in wildlife where I did my thesis research on a deer population study in North Florida. Then I went to the University of Georgia to work under Carl Miller for my PhD. Uh, but I was doing research on, on forest birds, songbirds, um, not deer. I think a lot of people probably don't realize Carl did a lot more than deer work. Yeah. I finished graduate school in 1996 and got a job here at, at the Department of Energy, Savannah Riverside in South Carolina, uh, working with the Forest Service Southern Research Station, uh, which, as the name implies, is just the, the research branch of the U.S. Forest Service. And I've been here ever since. I'm a research wildlife biologist. Uh, over the years, I've studied about everything from birds and bats to turkeys, wild pigs. Uh, and and coyotes and deer, um, which has been a big focus of my work for the last 15 years or so. Um, and, of course, that that's uh, mainly predation on fawns. Yeah. But completely. And I guess has most of that research been, been focused here in the southeast? Yeah. I started mainly uh, with a big project there at Savannah River site. But I've been involved in, in studies at, in Louisiana and North Carolina and Georgia. So, um, yeah, all, all southeastern, but uh, across the, the region. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, definitely want to dive into some of that research here in just a little bit. And uh, we're going to get into, into some fawn biology stuff as well. Uh, but, but before we do, I want to, want to kind of back things up just a little bit into the actual fawning process for from a, I guess a doe's perspective starting with you know what types of areas do do these whitetail does select for fawning what, what are they looking for I guess specifically when it comes you know time for them to to give birth to their fawns well like a lot of aspects of deer biology it kind of depends on where in the range you are um, in the midwest and parts of the northeast that they Fawns spend a lot of time in hayfields or, or open areas. Um, 
here what we've seen is that even in in pine dominated landscapes uh, they tend to look for more closed canopy conditions usually hardwood slopes or drains uh, for actually giving birth to the fawns and then as the fawns age they'll they'll move out from those areas okay so when you say these these hardwood drainages so fairly open at at the i guess eye level for these these deer or is it is it more heavy cover what's what's it look like i guess at their level uh fairly dense cover okay. um here in the coastal plain it you know it may be switch cane or palmetto dominated areas so yeah they're looking for thicker areas um not necessarily the thickest stuff that that may be in in the area but um certainly they they don't want to be in wide open pine plantations with just pine needles on the ground uh they they are looking for for somewhat denser areas right and do the do the does compete somewhat for that preferred fawning habitat i mean is there are they territorial well they they'll isolate themselves from other does that they're associated with just before they give birth and so you know whether it's there's competition for those areas or not we don't it, it probably depends on how dense the deer population is if 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 you're in a low density situation then um there's plenty of of suitable space uh higher density areas maybe not so much but they're they're able to to isolate themselves at least for the you know the the birth event itself and and a few hours or or a couple of days afterwards and what what do these does do i guess in, in the absence of good fawning cover i mean do you see is there dispersal like behavior do, they, do will they seek out this good cover you know traveling distances or or are they just going to kind of use typically just use what's in you know in their area i guess yeah they're going to be somewhere in their home range we sometimes see some restlessness or uh call it prepartum restlessness uh where they'll they'll leave their area for a few hours and and then come back but but they're going to have their fawns in their home range the, the area that they know best um and so yeah whatever's available in their home range is 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 what they've got to choose from um in in most situations at least where we've worked there, there hadn't been a shortage of of suitable cover for fawning okay well let's let's dive into some some basic fawn biology then we'll we'll say our our you know, our doe here, our, our hypothetical doe has is, is found good fawning cover and, and gives birth to the fawn. Uh, what are those first, you know, say 24 to 48 hours? What, what's that look like for the, for the doe and the fawn? She will stay with the fawn in the, the birthing bed, if you will, um, for a few hours. Um, usually by five, six, seven hours after she gives birth. Um, she'll move the fawn from that bed. Uh, the, 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 those first few hours there, she's grooming and doing some initial bonding and uh, maybe a little bit of nursing there in the bed. But then she's she's going to get them out of there pretty quickly, maybe only going 25, 30 yards, maybe a couple hundred yards. Um, and if she's got twins, as most adult, healthy adult does do, she'll separate the twins uh, or triplets if she has triplets. Um, so as not to, to keep all her eggs in one basket, so to speak. Um, and then she'll, she'll leave them 
uh, and only come back to nurse maybe just once a day, usually three or four times a day um, at, at intervals throughout the day. And then as, as the fawns age, um, they're, they're, they're hiding. They're relying on their camouflage. Uh, so they're pretty agile pretty quickly, but uh, the strategy is, is a hider strategy. And so they don't move much and except when the doe comes uh, to visit for, for a nursing bout. Um, and she'll move them from bed to bed uh, as each, each time she comes to visit, um, maybe not too far, but um, just so that they're not in the same space all the time. Yeah. Is, is that a defense mechanism, you think, just to minimize, you know, scent in that one area or or do we know? Well, yeah, I think it, it almost certainly is um, in order to. If a predator is is keying on a doe, for example, um, or or cruising through an area frequently, um, the more activity in that area, the, the more likely they are to to search it more carefully. Um, so the the more they they move uh, bed sites, for example, um, the, the safer they presumably are going to be. And I, I guess along those same lines. Uh, it, can you speak on, you know, there's a common, um, well, I don't want to call it a myth that you give us the answer, but, uh, you know, there's a common thought out there that, that these fawns <clears throat> are odorless. Is there any truth to that? Well, not completely odorless. Uh, they, they actually are, are unable to urinate and defecate on their own uh, during those first few days. And she has to uh, groom their uh, genital and anal regions to get to stimulate that, and then she consumes it. So that that kind of thing minimizes odor, um, but it, it's not completely eliminated. But but certainly there, she's doing what she can to keep that kind of uh, signal down to a minimum. Man, yeah, that's that's fascinating. And, and how quickly do those fawns become mobile after birth? Well, like I say, they can they can move surprising distances even just within a few hours. Um, usually they don't, but but they're capable of going three, four hundred yards. Um, kind of <laughs> stumbling along behind her, I guess. Um, but but they're they're able to to get around. They're they're not agile enough to evade anything for for a few weeks. Um, but by two or three weeks. You know they've they've doubled or tripled their size, their their birth weight, and and they're remarkably fast. They don't have much endurance. Um, so if something's chasing them that that does have endurance, like a coyote, uh, they're not in very well equipped to to evade that. But but they can they can move quickly, pretty soon. Like I say, within two or three weeks um, after birth. Yeah, and. and- how far away are the does, I guess, leaving these fawns? Are they are they kind of staying within earshot or are they just making their normal, you know, rounds that they would even in the absence of a fawn? Or? Um, they are usually within 100 to 200 yards, but they may be 500 yards away. Uh, there's a lot of individual variability in, in how does uh, behave with regard to fawns, how often they visit, what time of day they visit how far away they get from the fawns. Um, but yeah, most of the time they're, they're going to be 
within a couple hundred yards. So if a if a fawn were to bleat uh, in distress, then often she's going to show up pretty quickly, uh, but not necessarily. Yeah, but otherwise, staying away. Other than you know, you said what one one maybe two times a day to to nurse the fawn. Yeah, sometimes three or four. Um, it, it it may be as few as as one for twenty four hours, but usually on average, I think it's three or four times a day. Okay. Yeah. So th- this is a good time to remind folks, and I and I know most of our listeners are are going to know this. They're going to know enough about about deer and fawns, and and they've heard it before. But you know, the old you know this time or well coming up here pretty soon people start finding those fawns they don't see the the doe around and just assume that the deer the fawn's been abandoned and you know then they pick it up and bring it home and then they're on facebook trying to figure out what to do with this thing um the, the best thing to do is leave it alone yeah it's that's that's all part of their their system uh unless you know for a fact that that doe was hit by a car or something um, it's, it's almost certainly not abandoned or orphaned. Yeah. Do, I mean, do you ever see that? Do you ever see cases where, where does abandon their fawns for whatever reason? Yeah, it happens. Um, pretty, pretty low percentages. Um, sometimes it, it um, uh, depending on the dose condition or whatever environmental characteristics, uh, might limit her ability to, uh, provide, milk for the fawn or sometimes it's uh, the fawn is, is just too weak to nurse um yeah they, they will occasionally be abandoned or whether it's abandonment or not die of, of starvation but um that's you know usually two or three percent of of the fawns in a given year a given area okay and i guess uh, it's also while we're here kind of kind of busting some fawn myths uh, what about the, the one where, you know, you always hear people say, well, if you, if you touch or handle that fawn, the, the mother's going to reject it after that. Any truth behind that? Nope. Um, otherwise we wouldn't be able to do the kind of research on fawns that it, it requires handling them and right. uh, you know, putting a radio collar on them. That, that maternal bond is, is so strong that that's, that's not a concern. Right. Gotcha. Yeah, not not that we're encouraging anybody to handle fawns, but you know, if you do, there there are cases where, you know, somebody might have to move one out of the road or, or out of a field, you know, they, where you're cutting hay or something, and, you know, situation like that where the the fawn is in imminent danger. But yeah, it's just it's good to know, move the fawn out of the way, and and the doe will still, she'll come back and take care of her fawn. So, yep, they're going to be perfectly fine. Yeah, obviously, you don't want to uh, cuddle it and leave any more scent on it, sweat all over it, whatever <laughs> then, then you have to, but right. uh, it's not something to, to be concerned about. And so how, how long will that fawn or how long does it rely on, on the doe for food or, you know, how, how long does it take basically to, for that fawn to wean? They wean at about three or four months, usually about the time they're losing their spots, but they can actually, well, they start eating plant material way before that. Um, after just a couple of weeks and they're, they're capable of surviving without milk at about 10 weeks or so. Um, they, they want to nurse. So, uh, the doe continues to allow that for, for some time after that, but, uh, they, they wean completely by around three or four months. And then what types of, I guess, foods will, will they prefer 
as they're being weaned. I mean, I assume they're probably eating the, the same thing that the, the doe is eating. Yeah, they're they're learning uh, what deer eat, uh, watching the, the doe. And uh, I think a lot of it is just innate that they're they're eating normal deer forage. Do we know, <clears throat> I guess, what other things a, a, a fawn learns from its mother as opposed to, you know, just being instinctual? Uh, we don't, or, or I don't. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think a lot of it is instinctive, but, um, you know, it's hard to separate those two things. Uh, they're, they're spending as they get older, they're spending more and more time with her to the point where they're almost always together, at least until the rut. Um, and then even after the doe, uh, is bred, they get back together. Um, through, through the winter and so they're they're bound to be learning some things but but what they're learning um they're obviously they're learning their their home range which, which they largely share with the doe um but as far as behavior and predator avoidance and social interaction and that kind of thing hard hard to separate right yeah and, and when when does that happen you mentioned you know that when they start spending more time with the doe kind, kind of I guess when when does that start happening? When do you start seeing, you know, more um that that doe and, and fawn spending more time together as opposed to just, you know, two or three four daily visits? Uh within a few weeks, um five, six weeks or so, you know, you, you may have cameras out in late summer, say, and uh and you get visits by just the fawn by itself. Or a doe who you know has a fawn and the fawn's not in in view um so they're they're not always together but uh yeah within five six weeks they're they're starting to travel and, and by late summer uh early fall they're they're usually going to be together okay and and you mentioned earlier in our conversation you just mentioned about you know twins and triplets how come how common are triplets or even have you know quadruplet fawns uh well, quadruplets are, are very rare. Uh, triplets are, are, it depends on the population, depends on the, the health of, of the herd, uh, of the individual deer. Um, out, of, out of all the, for example, the, the fawns or the, the does whose fawns we monitored at uh, in the study at Savannah Riverside, um, which was a couple hundred does, there were, there was one set of triplets. Other populations, um, it, it may be much higher rate, but it's still twins are, are certainly the norm. Um, younger does are, are does and, and not as good a condition or are more likely to have singles, but, but very healthy does will occasionally have triplets. And, and that's going to be based solely or primarily on, on the health of the doe. Is there any, I guess, genetics at play there as well? Um, to be honest, I'm not sure what the, the genetic influences on that, whether, whether there are, uh, populations with a higher incidence of, of having triplets based on, on their genetic history. But, um, certainly her condition is plays a big, big part in that. Right. Now uh, we're going to, we're going to dive into predation here in just a minute. I want to talk a good bit about that. Um, but while we're talking here about does birthing multiple fawns, I, I kind of set this question aside and, and you had referred to something earlier that I hadn't thought of when I listed this question out, but 
it was, you know, I was going to ask you if a fawn with siblings or a sibling or siblings, uh, whether that impacts their, their chance of surviving predation. And uh, I hadn't thought about the fact, like you mentioned, that, that the mom actually separates those two. So may, maybe it doesn't. But is there any is there any science there or has research shown whether or not, you know, a, a fawn with a sibling is less likely to survive or, or be more likely to be uh, predated than than a, a single fawn? There doesn't seem to be any any relationship there in mm-hmm. terms of how or whether that affects their survival. Um in other words, single fawns are no more or less likely to survive than twins. Twin, one, one member of a twin pair may be uh, depredated or may die from whatever cause. The other one is no more or less likely to, to survive because of that. Right, because she's separating them like that. And they, I guess they, do they, when she does that, do they remain separate until, you know, like you said, that five or six week period when she starts traveling with them? Right. Uh, yeah, about the time they're they're becoming more uh, mobile and more frequently moving with her, they're coming together. Okay. Well, getting into predation, I know you've done a good bit of, of research in that area. And when you're doing that, when you're conducting this this fawn research, where I know it's it's uh, critical to to kind of start monitoring these fawns as soon after birth as possible. Um, how are you doing that? How are you able to locate and capture these fawns and start tracking them at, at the earliest age possible? Yeah, so fawn research has been done since the advent of radio telemetry, or at least since transmitters got small enough to, to put on fawns. And the way people initially um, found fawns to, or caught fawns to collar was that uh, you basically just get a, a, a big crew and uh, systematically search suitable areas. Um, like I said, I think I mentioned earlier, the uh, in in a lot of the Midwest, for example, open areas are are good fawning habitat and not not wide open, but uh, fields that with with some cover in them. And so you just get big, get a big crew and walk through a field. In the southeast that doesn't work so well because <laughs> of our dense cover. And, and so in order to, to find enough fawns to make a study, which ideally you want 30, 40 fawns a year from a given area, more if, if you can afford that many transmitters, uh, you're just not going to find them just by going out and searching. So when I started working on this, um, luckily something, a, a new type of transmitter, new technology came on the scene, and that was vaginal implant transmitters about 20 years ago. Um, So what this involves is catching the doe while she's pregnant, so in the winter, putting a collar on her to track her and implanting her with this vaginal implant transmitter that is then expelled when she gives birth. The fawn pushes it out when it's born. That transmitter then senses either the change in temperature or some of them can detect change in light conditions. Um, and it puts out a different radio signal. Uh, some of these transmitters now even communicate with the doze collar, which is linked satellite uplinks to a satellite and it'll send a message to your phone or computer and give you an alert that birth has occurred. When you get that message, then you got to go quickly to, to track to the doe and, and hopefully find her still in, in the birthing bed if, if possible. Um, 
if you get there quick enough. Uh, and, and even if she's moved off, uh, hopefully the fawns are still there. We do give them a couple hours after birth, as I mentioned earlier, uh, to have that initial sort of bonding period. Um, because at, at a few hours, six, eight hours after birth, she's going to move them out of there. And then it gets a whole lot harder to find them again. And then you're back to the, the sort of the systematic searches. <laughs> they're going to, as I said, they're going to be usually not too far from the, the birth bed within those first few hours. Um, and we use things like thermal imaging cameras to, to aid in that search. So the technology has really made this, this a whole lot easier to do. Um, still, still difficult, but it's, uh, it's doable now. And then once, once we find them, uh, it's not a matter of catching them. As, as I said, they're just hiding. They're just laying in the bed. Uh, so you can pick them up, put a collar on them, note their sex, take a few quick measurements, put them back in the bed. And, and we're usually done in four or five minutes from, from when we found them. And, and these are GPS tracking collars that, that you're using. Uh, sometimes GPS collars suitable for phones have, have, are still new. Uh, we've got a study now uh, that I'm, I'm working with Clemson University on um, that has GPS collars on phones. But most studies to date have used sort of the old fashioned VHF collar, regular radio transmitter. OK, just because of the, the size. Right. So that you might not be able to answer this next question. And maybe this may be something you're, that you're actually looking at with that, with that study you just mentioned, but it, I was going to ask if there's any evidence that, that the collar itself uh, results in, you know, maybe above average mortality on these fawns. No. And you know, that's something that, that is constantly, we're constantly aware of and, and concerned about minimizing any influence of, of our work, whether it's the handling or the collar or anything else because we don't want the work to be biased. Um, and it's a question that we get uh, all the time. The, the, the strongest evidence that it doesn't uh, is independent data that, that corroborates the, the same kinds of numbers. Uh, for example, uh, get a recruitment index from a camera survey. Um, we can back that into a survival rate uh, the same number we get from the radio card phones. And it's remarkable how, how consistent it is. So, you know, we're, we're confident that um, the measures that have been taken to, to minimize the size of the collars and, as I said, the, the handling time on the phones, giving them time to, to bond with the dough, um, that, that it doesn't result in any kind of bias. Okay. So yeah, that's interesting. So there is uh, there there are ways to track that then and and then to see you know that whether or not those those collars or or the handling or whatever is having having an impact on survival. Well, let's let's get into you know some of the initial predation research you did. Uh, you mentioned there at the the Savannah River site, uh, and I, I mean correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe that that was really some of the first um, research that that showed predation was having a, a pretty significant impact on fawn survival uh, here in the Southeast. So can you talk about that project and kind of, you know, what you guys found as far as, you know, what, what's, what's eating these fawns and, and how often and that, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh, of course, a lot of things like to eat fawns, uh, mid-sized predators and up um, bobcats, 
uh, wolves and cougars or panthers where they occur. Black bears especially can take a lot of fawns. Uh, but yeah, by and large, across the range of whitetails, coyotes are the most important predator far and away. And uh, there were, there, uh, you mentioned that ours were some of the first. It, it was the, the first in the southeast. There had been work in Texas and Oklahoma um, that had shown pretty high predation rates by, by coyotes. Um, but of course, uh, coyotes are relatively fairly new on the scene in a lot of the southeast. Um, they've only been here and, and well-established anyway for, depending on where you are, 20 to 40 years. Uh, some areas right along the east coast, it's only been 10 or 15 years. Um, so there hadn't been much work. The, the combination of the unavailability of vaginal implant transmitters and, and therefore the ability to study fawn survival uh, and the lack of, of any concern for fawn survival because uh, coyotes weren't here yet in, in, in big numbers, uh, there hadn't been much work until we did the work at, uh, in South Carolina. Um, since then, uh, studies, like I say, across the region, uh, some of which I've been involved in and, and others I have not been, uh, have all pretty consistently found uh, the same kind of thing. It, it varies. Predation rates vary a little bit from, from place to place. Uh, but by and large, uh, it's, it's become an issue uh, that we did not have to deal with uh, back during uh, and soon after restocking as deer populations were, were skyrocketing. Um, so it, it's a new, relatively new uh, force to, to, to be considered. And, and what kind of, I guess, predation rates were, were you seeing on this study site? I mean, how, how many fawns were being eaten by predators? The, the study was done over seven years, uh, 2006 to 2012. Um, and from year to year, it was remarkably consistent, uh, between 20 and 25% survival rate. Um, so of those fawns that died, 80% of them were being taken by coyotes, about 10% by bobcats and then various miscellaneous other accidents and a few abandonments and things like that accounted for, for the rest of it. But yeah, 80% of, of mortality, not 80% of all the phones, but of those that die, 80% were, were taken by coyotes. 20% of, or 20 to 25%, depending on the year, uh, survived. Wow. Is there a way, when, when you were looking at that, is, was there any way to discern whether or not those fawns were, you know, killed and, and eaten by the coyotes or whether or not it w- could have been you know, I don't know, a stillbirth or, or the, the fawn died of some other reason and, and was just then eaten as scavenged by the by the coyotes. Yeah, so when you have a, a collar on a fawn, but the collar has a, a motion sensor that will tell you when it hasn't moved for however it's pro- however long that collar is programmed. Uh, during that study, we had uh, these mortality sensors uh, programmed for four hours. If the collar didn't move for four hours, it changes the, the signal it's giving, and and so we know the phone is likely dead. Then we track into the phone and um, to try to determine, it, assuming it, it was dead and it wasn't a false mortality, which we didn't have to deal with very often. 
Um, once you find the carcass, if there is any carcass left, um, then it becomes a sort of a CSI type situation <laughs> to figure out what, what happened. Um, if it's just a dead fawn with no apparent injuries, uh, you may have to do a more detailed necropsy, may even involve sending it to a, a wildlife veterinary lab that can look at, uh, you know, tissue samples and more detailed physiological indicators to determine if it was diseased or had some other illness. Um, if it's obviously emaciated, if it clearly died of starvation, um, perhaps the doe abandonment or abandoned it or it was just uh, too sick or, or weak to nurse. But most often, the cause of death was predation, and so then it becomes a matter of determining which predator was responsible. So there can often be pretty clear evidence there in the field. Different predators leave different kinds of sign, uh, whether that's something obvious like tracks or just the way that that carcass was cached or, or hidden. Um, bobcats, for example, will typically cover the remains with leaf litter or sticks. They just sort of scrape some litter over it. Coyotes will uh, either just feed on it and, and not catch it at all, or more often when they do catch it, um, they actually bury it in the dirt. So like a dog burying a bone. Hmm. So if you find find it buried under the dirt, um, then it's pretty safe to assume it, it was a coyote. Um, but sometimes there's not crystal clear evidence at, at the scene. So again, luckily, uh, technology in the form of, of genetic tools have, have advanced to the point that we can actually take a swab, just like with a Q-tip, around the bite wound uh, and get any residual saliva that the predator left on it, even if you can't see it. Uh, then submit that swab to a genetics lab, and they can tell us which species bit that fall. Hmm. Man. It's amazing, amazing the the technology involved at at all levels of of this kind of research. Did what about you mentioned? Um, of course, coyotes, and, and you mentioned bears and bobcats. Were there were there feral hogs in this area? And and if so, did you see any sign of predation by hogs? Yes, there is an abundant population of <laughs> hogs, um, and I it, sort of expected that at some point as opportunistic as hogs are and and as much uh as they'll eat anything uh i expected that we would find that but only one fawn or the the sample the, the dna sample from only one fawn came back with hog dna on it and it also had coyote dna and i assumed in that situation that that fawn was killed by a coyote cashed and that whole area was all rooted up that the hogs just sort of, and, and in that case, it was just the transmitter, not the, um, there was no carcass. It was just the fawn's collar. And so we get DNA off the collar and the collar had both coyote and hog DNA on it. So I assumed that the coyote killed it and the hogs just sort of rooted through there and left their slime on it. Okay. Gotcha. So to answer your question, we did not document any predation by hogs. Not to say that it doesn't happen. I can't imagine if a hog stumbled on a fawn in his bed that it would pass up that meal. Right, right. It must not happen very often. But cer- certainly not a significant factor, though. If, if there if there was a lot of hogs in this area and, and you didn't see any, you know, other than that, that one potential case, then, then 
probably not a uh, a high factor in in fawn predation. Now, I guess it, did you see a is there a point in these these fawns first whatever six months or year of life whatever it is uh, whatever the case where they become much less susceptible to predation where you know once once they got that that past that point uh you know the odds of them being you know killed by a coyote or bear or whatever went went down significantly yeah that that first week is really the danger period um as in that particular study it was something like 40 percent of, of all the deaths happened in that that first week. Um, and I think the first three weeks, it was something like 75%. And then it, it tails off after that. Um, we never had a coyote uh, predation on a fawn older than nine weeks. Um, and that was an isolated case. Uh, it was uh, most of it that once they make it to, to five or six weeks, they're out of the woods, so to speak. Um, and, and, Soon after that, their their survival probability is roughly equivalent to that of adult deer. Now, obviously, coyotes can and do sometimes take adult deer. In some situations, they, they take more than others. Um, but as far as fawns are concerned, once they make it to, you know, to late summer or fall, um, they're in good shape okay. as far as coyotes are concerned. Yeah. And how long did you actually monitor these fawns? At, at what point did did you no longer, you know, were they, were they no longer part of the study? I guess, or was there is there a point where their collar comes off? Or yeah, the collar is it's uh, elastic, so it grows with them. It has accordion folds that are stitched loosely, so uh, those folds open up and, and allow for that growth. And then at some point, the uh, the ends of it just come apart. And so it falls off, depending on on the fawn, anywhere from about eight months to a year and a half. So on average, we we track them about a year. And of course, we we can also catch them in the winter in the process of catching does that are you know six eight month old fawns caught in January February March, um, and we can track those with an adult collar. And and we see that their survival is, is the same as, as adults. Okay. Well, based on your research, can can fawn survival be improved through the hunting and, and trapping of predators? Or is this is this something you've looked at in some of your research and it is something we looked at. Um we did a pretty intensive three year uh coyote removal project as as part of that project. Um we removed, I think it was 450-some coyotes off of about 20,000 acres over three years. And it did, our, our metrics of, of coyote abundance did show a, a decline between uh, the winter and, and the fawning season, but uh, the, their numbers recovered quickly. I think uh, Mike Chamberlain, one of your, your previous guests, uh, address how quickly they can recolonize an area right after you uh, remove them but but it, it, their, their density was lower during fawning season during fawning season but not we weren't able to eliminate them so uh, we saw variables like I said we did this over three years the first year 
we saw a doubling in pawn survival. It went from about 25% up to about 50%. So it, it did increase. The second year, after taking out the same number of more coyotes, pawn survival was back down to where it, it was in prior to removing coyotes. So in that 20 to 25% range. And then after the third year of, of additional removals, um, it was sort of intermediate. It was 40 45%, something like that. It the short that. answer to the question is that, yes, you can improve survival, but it's not a guarantee. And it takes a, a super intensive effort uh, of, of removing coyotes, preferably as close to fawning season as possible, although trapping seasons uh, in most states don't allow trapping that late. Um, and the longer you do it over the, uh, the bigger an area, as possible, the, the better the chances uh, of of seeing a benefit to to fawn survival you have. But it, like I say, it, it takes such an extensive and intensive effort over a long period that it it just doesn't seem to be within the realm of possibility for for the average landowner to to do on a scale that would be necessary. It can be done, but it it takes a a huge effort. Right. Did, did you have any theories on the the difference between that first and second year? Why why it seemed like it helped so much that first year and then went right back to, you know, the 25% or so on that second year? You know, we can speculate on that. Um, but no, but in short, I, I don't know what was going on there. But we had something. So during the, the summer, uh, actually, the number one food item in the coyote diet is fruit, soft mats. Um, whether it's plums or blackberries or black cherries or pokeweed, whatever is fruiting it in a given month, that's what makes up the bulk of coyote diets during that, that time of year. Number two on that list is fawns. Well, if the if the soft mass crop is a bust or or is for whatever reason just not as abundant, maybe the fawns uh, sort of took it in the pants to as coyotes were needing to, to supplement their diet even more. As I say, of course, we didn't get all the coyotes, maybe just the the mixture of the individuals that were left and those that, that uh, the transients that moved in after were, were <laughs> better, more effective hunters. I don't know what was going on there, yeah. but um, other studies have seen similarly inconsistent results, uh, which is why I say it's not a guarantee that trapping will will improve fawn survival, but it, it can. I know there's, there's been at least one study that looked at, um, fawn mortality, I guess, kind of outside of predation. It, it was conducted in an area where there, there weren't any predators present. That's, that's my understanding. And what they found was, you know, that there was still a, a significant number of fawns, I guess, that, that still die even outside of, of predation. So, could you, even though I know you weren't directly involved with that study, could you just kind of touch on maybe what, you know, some of those other causes are and, and how that, that plays into, um, you know, I guess overall fawn recruitment and, and deer numbers? Yeah, sure. And no, I wasn't involved in that study, but um, it was a, a really interesting study uh, and, and, and it raised some great questions that I, I don't have all, we don't have all the answers to yet, but I'll, I'll give it a try. Um, so like I say, the study was done in 
in Delaware by Justin Dion and, and his colleagues at the University of Delaware. Uh, just came out in the last year or two. And like I say, it raised some some interesting questions. And I may get kind of long-winded here. Uh, it'll, it'll take me a minute to really get into it. But they looked at, at pond survival in a, in a part of Delaware that had no predators, not even bobcats. And so what you'd expect to see then is pretty high survival. No predators killing fawns, so a bunch of them ought to make it through, right? But they didn't. Um, as I recall, they found survival to be somewhere around 50%, which is still pretty high relative to uh, some of the other studies we've been talking about from the southeast. And in fact, it's actually uh, about what we saw in the best year of, of the coyote removal study we did at Savannah River. But some studies outside of the southeast have found survival as high as 70, 80% or so. So if predators weren't killing them, what you're asking is, is what was then? Right. I think, as I recall, um, there were a couple of accidents. I think one drowned maybe. Um, but for the most part, it was almost completely emaciation, sometimes resulting from different diseases. They, they documented a number of, of diseases. And so what the study did was raise the question that you're kind of asking now, that, that maybe in all these studies in the southeast where we, we showed these high predation rates, maybe predation is what we would call a proximate cause of death or the, the thing that actually kills the fawn. But ultimately, the cause of death was actually some kind of disease or, or emaciation resulting from, from various causes. Uh, so, in other words, maybe a predator got them because they were sick, or even if they weren't sick yet, if a predator hadn't gotten them, then, then those fawns would have eventually died of disease anyway. So this is something that, that we call compensatory mortality. Quick little biology lesson here. With different sources of mortality operate in a compensatory manner, then if fawns or any kind of animal for that matter, if they don't die from one thing, they're going to die of another. So that roughly the same number of animals are going to die one way or another every year. Because if one source of mortality is somehow reduced, another will compensate or increase to take over. Well, the alternative situation is when different sources of mortality act in an additive manner, where animals that die of one source are in addition to those that would die of other sources. Uh, that is, they would not have died anyway. And that's what we've been saying predation is, or, or the way predation is acting in, in the southeastern populations we've studied. So I don't know what was going on in that Delaware population or any others. Uh, that, that might be working in, in a similar manner um, might have caused those other uh, natural sources of mortality or rates of those other sources of mortality to, to be high disease in, in particular. Um, that was a fairly high density population. I think maybe around 50 deer per square mile, as I recall. But that's not overpopulated by any means, at least not to the point that it should be affecting deer health. So whether it might have been some kind of density-dependent issue, I don't know how to explain it. But, but what I can say is there are a number of reasons that I don't believe that's what's going on in these other studies uh, showing high predation rates. And I still believe predation is additive in, in the populations we've studied. So for one thing, we've never recovered a carcass that a predator had killed that was emaciated. Certainly some fawns do die of emaciation. Um, 
And some research does indicate that those fawns may vocalize more or bleat more as, as they're sick. Of course, that's like sounding a dinner bell for a person. <laughs> yeah. So it makes sense that some of those fawns would get killed by a predator before they succumb to, to other causes of death. But of the fawns that, that we recovered that have been killed by predators, they were apparently, like I said, perfectly healthy. And I'm talking about 130, 140 fawns or so. Pretty good, good sample. Um, also, we have a pretty good idea of what things looked like before coyotes came on the scene in South Carolina. And recruitment was a lot higher than it is now. Some of us are, are actually old enough to remember when there weren't <laughs> any coyotes around. And we have historical data on fawn recruitment from the Savannah River site going back to 1965. Oh, wow. I wasn't around that long, but <laughs> we have data. Um, and coyotes didn't even show up there until 20 years after that, sometime in the, the mid-80s. And then they weren't abundant enough to make any difference for another 10 or 15 years after that. So that's a, a 20 to 30-year span of pre-coyote data. And it was really consistent. Recruitment averaged right around one fawn per doe every year. So I'm here a little more, some years a little less, but right in that neighborhood. Well, given how many fawns per doe hit the ground every year, that equates to a survival rate of about 65 to 70 percent. To have one fawn make it to the fall, about 65 to 70 percent of them would have to have survived, given how many are born. Well, since the late 90s, when coyote numbers really started to take off, it's averaged about 0.4 fawns per doe. And so coincidentally, that time period well so a, a, a recruitment rate of 0.4 fawns per doe equates to about 20 to 25 percent survival which is exactly what we've we've seen in these studies so i thought it was uh, that was pretty compelling evidence in and of itself when I, I put it together 15 years or so ago a smoking gun if you will um why would a whole lot more coyotes start dying right i mean fawns start dying right when coyotes showed up uh when they hadn't been dying before right yeah if coyotes weren't involved but it's still just circumstantial maybe it was just coincidental and something else was going on uh coincidentally at the same time that wasn't as obvious and so that's what that that seven-year study at savannah river was about that, that we talked about well actually the the first objective was to determine whether in fact coyotes were killing fawns and as we've discussed yes turns out they are but second uh and more to the point here in, in this context is that we wanted to know is that predation simply compensatory with some other unknown factor or is it additive to other sources as it appeared to be from that long-term recruitment data um so I'll, I'll spare the details of, of how we we did that other than to say that, that when we removed all those 450 some odd coyotes, I think, over a three year period, um, the incidence of coyote predation went down. We should have seen those other sources of mortality increase to compensate for the reduced predation if predation is just compensatory. Right. But we didn't. So I think that's the strongest evidence that predation is, is an additive source, again, at least in, in that population and, and the others we've studied in the Southeast. Okay. Um, that, that clear enough? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, predation, obviously taking out a lot of these fawns, um, hunting and trapping doesn't seem to be, a, uh, I guess, a really a viable option long-term for, for having a significant impact on this. So what about, I guess, what about habitat factors? 
can can we as hunters and land managers improve habitat, fawning habitat enough to see a an improvement in these fawn survival rates? Yeah, we talk about habitat a lot, um, and in the context of, of fawning habitat. And as I mentioned earlier, does and fawns are looking for denser areas, uh, air, areas with uh, lusher, more diverse uh, ground cover that, that would obstruct it, uh, uh, presumably obstruct the ability of a, a predator to, to locate the fawn, whether by sight or scent. Unfortunately, um, and, and to be clear there, they are uh, good fawning habitat is denser areas. Unfortunately, there's no connection that anybody has yet been able to show between areas that have really dense habitat and areas that that aren't so dense in the sense that fawns that live in denser areas don't are not any more likely to survive predation than fawns uh, in more open areas. Uh, so what what we've seen is that um, it the habitat effects operate more at a, a landscape scale. So if you've got more edge, for example, um, we, we think of predators as hunting edge, and they do. But for whatever reason, um, fawns with more edge in their home range are uh, more likely to survive than those that are in continuous forest. So um, doing what you can to to improve the understory uh, certainly is going to provide ample habitat available to, to does and fawns. Um, unfortunately, there's no particular type of structure uh, in terms of vegetation structure that's going to make your fawns any more likely to survive or less likely. It's like I say, it's more operating at, at landscape scale. And so having more uh, edges, road, power line rights away, that kind of thing, um, apparently seems to uh, inhibit coyote ability to to locate fawns. Okay. So it's going to take a, a more concerted effort, I guess, to improve habitat on a larger scale and if to, to be able to probably see any kind of significant uh, impact on the these fawn recruitment numbers then. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a lot easier to, to burn a stand to stimulate the understory than it is to, to put in a new power line right away. <laughs> um, but that, yeah, that's the kind of habitat condition, the only habitat condition that has uh, proven effective at, at improving survival. I know we've talked some about, you know, trapping and, and uh, we talked some about um, habitat improvement and, and some of the kind of limited things we can do there to uh, improve, improve overall, I guess, fawn recruitment and, and survival. Um, what else? Is there anything else we've missed as far as, you know, ways that we can improve fawn recruitment or increase uh, overall deer numbers on our property? Well, the, the easiest thing that, that's most in our control as hunters is simply reducing doe harvest. Um, that's the most surefire way to, to boost deer numbers. The more does that make it through hunting season, the more fawns that are going to hit the ground the next spring. And even if a fairly constant portion of them are going to die, the more they're born, the more that are going to make it through. I could give examples of, of situations where this has worked, but uh, that's probably not necessary. It's just not that complicated. Um, 
I will say it can take a while, even several years, depending on, on where a given population is, abundance-wise, sex ratio-wise, otherwise. Um, so with when survival and recruitment are, are so poor, uh, it can take a long time. Uh, even a complete moratorium on doe harvest can, can take a long time in some populations. But that's the, the easiest thing to do is reduce doe harvest. Um, managing doe harvest more, more carefully and intentionally is, is definitely, um, an easy way to go with that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And, and again, it just kind of, uh, uh, once again, shows the importance of, of one thing we preach uh, a lot of, at NDA and that's, um, you know, cooperatives or, or landowners working together uh, in an area to kind of have a, a larger impact on the landscape. And um, certainly something like that, reducing doe harvest to, to get those numbers back up um, is, is something that'll work a lot better if, if you have those neighbors, you know, working hand in hand with you to do that. So Exactly. And if you're working on a little 50 or 100 acre track, it's not even the size of one doe's home range, then uh, it's it's going to be an uphill battle. So the more acreage you can put together that's uh, pulling in the same direction, the, the better off you're going to be. Well, let's uh, let's move as we kind of start to wrap things up here. I want I want to talk about uh, some more recent research you were involved in. That was it was pretty interesting. You uh, it was presented at some of it at the the southeast recent southeast deer study group meeting, but it was a look at whether or not some does are are just better mothers to their fawns than others and can you kind of walk us through that project and and kind of what what you guys discovered through that research yeah that was actually part of the same study that i mentioned before that was done from 2006 to 2012 and i just now get to to analyzing that data but um because that study spanned seven years what we were able to do was was monitor pretty good sample of does in multiple years so we catch the fawns again. We we catch the doe implant over the transmitter that leads us to the fawn. Well, when we would recatch the same doe over multiple years, we could track her, that individual's fawns, and and their survival, um, over time, or o- over an additional multiple years. And so, what I thought was going on, I thought I noticed at the time, was that some does seem to year in, year out, be producing fawns that, that made it, and others just never seemed to get the hang of it. And so uh, we we did analyze that data, and and sure enough, that uh, it supported that perception that I had at the time that um, it's not universally true. Uh, about a third of, of the does in that sample um, would raise a fawn one year and not the next. Um, but most of the does, two-thirds were either consistently successful or consistently unsuccessful at raising a fawn. And so that that was um, really interesting. Uh, you know, not sure why that might be. Um, it, it, we've always talked about uh, doe age and experience that they, they learn to be better mothers as, as they have more experience, have, have more years of fawning. But age didn't seem to be a factor in that. Um, we had young does, one doe in particular that we caught as a fawn 
that we then caught when she was an adult or actually when she was a yearling. And that first year as a yearling, her first fawn, it was a single, which is common for yearlings. Um, it, it grew up and, and she was successful that year. And then we caught her two additional years after that. And she, she raised fawns every year. So from, from the get go, she seemed to know that she was doing something right. And others that were, um, very mature, you know, five, six, seven, eight year old does just couldn't, couldn't raise a fawn. Uh, so not sure what's, what's going on there. Doesn't seem to be a lot of learning, but maybe some innate behaviors that certain, some does have and not, others don't. Now uh, you might not have been able to, you know, I don't know if you got far enough ahead or were able to, to follow these deer along far enough to, to look at this, but I'm, I'm just curious did did the fawns of these the successful does did they go on to be successful mothers themselves? You know, I don't think we had enough data to uh, enough individuals track that way. Um, obviously, the one I just mentioned, um, we had caught her mother, so we knew that she raised that one fawn that then turned out to be successful herself. But there there may have been two or three others like that, but. Um, uh, yeah, I can't can't speak to that. To ha- whether they they learn it from their mother or uh, whether it's passed on genetically or otherwise, we don't know. Did Did you see any, I guess, specific behaviors of these deer that, or maybe specific behaviors of of the successful does versus the the less successful does or the unsuccessful does? I mean, was there anything that? Um, what am I trying to say here? Just, just I guess, any behaviors that was um, consistent to the successful does or maybe some behaviors you've seen that were consistent to the unsuccessful does that might, you know, point to why they were more likely to, to be predated or, or un- be unsuccessful. Yeah, well, in that study, we were not able to. Um, those collars were DHF collars, so we didn't have very intensive movement data. We're rarely able to see the deer um, because it's fairly dense forest. But with the, the study I mentioned a little while ago that we're doing now, uh, the Clemson study, uh, Mike Muthersba is doing for his doctoral research. He's got some data and he's still analyzing it. It's, it's preliminary. But what he's seeing is that those that uh, visit their phones less at night and that spend more time or, or spend their time further away from phones, um, in other words, that that don't bring as much attention to the fawn, um, that those are more successful. Okay. Those, those behaviors not coming at night when coyotes are, are more likely to be out hunting um, and, and staying away from the fawn. Those fawns have a greater chance of making it. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. So I guess, what would you say, is there a takeaway to this study for, for the average deer hunter? Um you know, maybe, maybe don't shoot those successful does if you're trying to uh, improve deer numbers on your property. Yeah. Um, and that can be hard to do if you're, if you're wanting to avoid shooting button bucks, for example, uh, you've got two deer in a field, one's big, one small, both antlerless. You take the big one, uh, because she's less likely to be a button buck. But what you've done there, that's a doe in her fawn from the previous year is you've taken a successful mother. So, 
uh, when possible, if, if you can sort out the deer you're looking at and take a doe that doesn't have smaller deer with it, she's more likely to be a less, uh, an unsuccessful mother. Um, take her. Uh, obviously you're, you're running a greater risk of, of shooting a button buck if, if you can't definitively confirm that it's not one, if you don't have a good enough look, it's not close enough or whatever. But yeah, um, anything that since, since during the fall, fawns are traveling with their mothers and you see antlerless deer of different sizes, then that's a doe and her fawns, fawn or fawns, uh, most likely, uh, and, and not shooting her, uh, will protect a, a successful mother. Yeah. Well, I, I or on the other hand, if, if it's a situation where, where you've got too many deer and you need to um, reduce density, then then targeting those deer would be uh, more effective than targeting the, the unsuccessful mother. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know anything about this study uh, last deer season, but I, I did. Uh, I found myself, we, we just bought a, 15 acre property here in, in Georgia. And, uh, so this past season was the first year I was able to hunt on it, but I, I had a, a doe that was routinely showing up with twins and, and I just couldn't never could bring myself to, uh, to take her because I figured if she was, if she raised twins this year, she might, uh, you know, raise twins in subsequent years. So it's good to know there's a little science behind that. Yeah. So I, I guess to kind of wrap things up here, uh, I'm curious o- over, you know, you've been studying studying deer and fawns for for quite a few years now. Has there been any, I guess, ideas or beliefs that you held early on that that have changed with time as you've as you've done this research? You know, I think there were some assumptions. First of all, I didn't realize when, when we started the the level of predation. I was surprised by that, um, but it. it quickly became evident. And, and like I say, it's consistent year to year. Um, other than that, I, you know, I, I guess not. There are, there are a number of questions that, that we still have that I still have, but um, I can't think of any, anything that's, that's changed. Yeah. Well, what's, you mentioned you, you still have some questions. What, what's kind of the, the next thing you would like to, to figure out or, or to try to get answers to regarding fawns? I would love to know how coyotes are finding fawns, how, how they're keying on or what they're keying on. Uh, are they stumbling on the fawn in its bed? Some, some of the, the deaths that, that we recovered, the fawn carcasses, it, it looks like that. It, they just have a bite in the top of their head. And, um, but, but, but we can't tell from that. Uh, or are they keying on something the doe is doing? And some of that, that data that I mentioned of Mike's uh, that, that he's working on now suggests that there are no behaviors that uh, either predispose a fawn to predation or, or maybe uh, insulate it somehow from predation. Um, but until we can put a, a camera on, on a coyote and a fawn, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, the, like some research is, is doing that on, on larger animals. Uh, that it's hard to observe the actual predation event itself here in, in the East where it's so heavily forested and uh, understories are so dense. We just don't see it happen very often. Right. Yeah. Well, I think with that, John, we'll, we'll wrap things up here. I've had John for over an hour, but uh, I, I certainly appreciate your time and 
I've enjoyed the conversation and uh, and learned a lot. And I know our listeners will, uh, will get a good bit of information out of this as well. So I'm looking forward to looking forward to sharing it with them. Yeah. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed talking to you. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Dr. John Kilgo. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and, and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Uh, or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to, uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at DeerAssociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Hey, you can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website, covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.